This is the Ad Hero Podcast, the podcast that reveals marketing tips, trends, and techniques by industry experts, insiders, and influencers. For years, Ad Symbol has helped businesses develop and launch campaigns to amplify their message, establish authority, and earn their lion's share of the market. This podcast will help you design and supercharge your plan to make an impact with valuable lessons you can apply in your business today. To get more information or start now, visit adsymbol.com. That's A-D-S-E-M-B-L-E.com. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ad Hero Podcast. My name is Gino Giovanni. And I'm Matthew Livieri. And we are your personal ad heroes. And this is episode 50. We're so excited to be here today, revealing to you guys our top 10 favorite highlights from the first 50 episodes that we've recorded. And one of the most amazing thing is when we first launched the Ad Hero Podcast back in summer of 2019, we would have never imagined that we would be here today at the major milestone of 50 episodes recorded. We couldn't do it without you guys, so we really hope you enjoy this very special episode of the Ad Hero Podcast. So let's begin the reel, traveling all the way back to 2019 with episode one. Counting down our top 10 moments of the Ad Hero Podcast. Coming in at number 10, it's the episode that started it all. This was episode one. This is my eye every time are the Apple ads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and it's almost like they buy the whole billboard the entire time because their ad is up like all year round. Uh, At least there's one section in uh, San Jose or Santa Clara that I always see an ad up for them. And what I like is they just show what the product can do and the best to its capability. And they're like, this is what an iPhone looks like when you're shooting this picture. Or it's like, this was shot on an iPhone. Yeah. This, This picture on this billboard was shot on an iPhone. You know, it'd be kind of interesting to see because, you know, it'll say like shot on iPhone 10 or whatever. Right. Kind of want to go back because I know they've been doing that style of a campaign for a while um, and see if it was, was there one that said like shot on iPhone 7, you know, or something like mm-hmm. that. And then be, to be able to put the, the picture side by side yeah, and then like, okay, is there really a difference in quality here? Or <laughs> <laughs> is there any point? Yeah, that's, that's something to look at. I don't need Google's help, I think, with that. So... <laughs> But they, they do do a really good job. I think it's a strong piece of branding. And if anything, I mean, people emulate what's working. And uh, what you normally see is, is kind of like the minimalist thing is what works. Like Less is more. Yeah. And, and, and you know, we here at Adson, we like to uh, talk to our, when we talk to our clients, we like to talk about telling a story. So you have your social media that kind of tells a story. And that builds upon something else. Maybe it's radio ads or maybe it's uh, publications like a newspaper, magazine, what have you. But then when you get to the billboard, that tells the same story, but in a shorter amount of time. And it gets right to the point, at least those who are effective at it. And you want to be able to do that. And hopefully the billboard is positioned in a way where you're driving and you notice it. And if you don't necessarily... Notice it completely, but the corner of your eye does. So it's all that like subliminal messaging. And there's some companies that just do a fantastic job about it. They just totally get straight to the point. And, and you know, because, yeah, like let's say a digital billboard runs for eight seconds, but 
you're going to probably see it anywhere between one to three seconds. Yeah. So you got to make sure you get right in there and to, and, and, and to see that. And, and if you have a passenger in the car, then hopefully they're looking at it a lot longer. You know, you, you touched on a really good point, and it's kind of that subliminal messaging aspect. Because um, a lot of people, when they're building their brand, they immediately go, all right, so I've got some font, I've got some, some colors in mind, and I'm just going to go blast it all over social media. But they don't really think about the, the like the recall aspect. Because I, you know, I've I woke up and I was on Instagram for a couple, pretty much do it every morning. I go on Instagram and Facebook, and, you know, go through a newsfeed and stuff. Um, I honestly can't think of any of the ads that I saw. You know, I know I scrolled past a bunch of them, but I, I can't think of any of them. Now I think about when I drove, um, you know, up to the city the other day. And uh, remember, for anyone listening, we're here. We're based here in San Jose, and so I was driving up towards San Francisco, and I saw an ad for the uh, San Jose earthquakes, uh, for the San Jose quakes, and I'm like, okay, so I can remember what that ad looked like, and now I know the you know the ad was just beat LA, and that's not at the forefront of my mind, but I'm recalling that I can easily remember that, you know, and I don't even really go to soccer games, but I know because. I saw that ad changing. It was something I saw on the road and the recall with billboards is just huge. And it just kind of bores into your mind. Coming in at number nine was our first ever episode featuring a show sponsor, Sun Vision Display. This was episode 40. All right. So we are super excited to formally welcome David and Aubrey here um, from uh, Sun Vision Display. Thank you guys so much again, first and foremost, for the sponsorship. We really appreciate that. Um, and I think the listeners are going to be super stoked to hear about how you guys came up with the idea for this, the go-to-market strategy, because you're kind of like a startup within a bigger organization. So maybe to kind of kick things off, could you both introduce yourselves and what your your uh, role is in the in the organization? And we'll kind of start from there and, and how you guys kind of work together on this product. Sure. So my name is Aubrey Abernethy, and I um, I'm with uh, New Vision Display, which is a, a manufacturer for OEMs. We do displays and touch screens, and Sun Vision Display is our new brand of or product line um, specifically for digital signage. And um, so we're taking kind of a, a LCD concept that's been around reflective LCDs and made it bigger um, and usable for outdoors. And it's a really exciting um, development, especially because of the the power savings. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you want to introduce yourself? uh, Thanks. Uh, My name is David Sexauer. I am the, the team lead here and business development manager for uh, the Sun Vision Display product line. Uh, And like what Aubrey said, uh, this is really our first branded, trademarked product line. Uh, You probably have seen New Vision Displays components in some other larger brand names and not known it. But uh, this is our first step really into the front line of uh, display components and also uh, the LCD market. So uh, when Matthew said that it's kind of like a startup, it really is. This is a very brand new venture for New Vision Display. And in that sense, it has a lot of startup ideas. It's a very innovative technology. Um, it's an, an incredibly exciting industry and market that's growing a lot right now. 
but we also have this incredible foundation from New Vision Display as being a very established uh, player in different components, so cut screens and, and various LCD. We thought it would be awesome for listeners to learn more about Sun Vision Display and specifically the origin story of this in- incredible product. Can you tell us a little bit about how the idea came about and how you established the need for this product? Sure, that's a great question. So uh, for most of the displays that, that we have come accustomed to that, that started really from our use of smartphones and tablets, uh, the, the public is, is expecting digital content. And also with your, your TVs getting bigger and bigger, they expect other displays to get larger and larger. So. Uh, as manufacturers were trying to figure out solutions there, uh, they tried to take the, the model of your phone, which has a, a backlight that goes through the LCD. And as anybody who's been outside on a bright day knows, it, it's pretty tough when it's a bright day. You can't really see the screen. Hmm. And even more so for a larger panel. So the traditional solution that had been going around was just get brighter, throw more logs on the fire, trying to blast through all that sunlight. And although it wasn't ideal, this became an accepted solution because the market was growing so much. Mm-hmm. And for a while it was just get your prices cheaper and make the displays bigger. We will figure out the sunlight thing later. Mm-hmm. Well, that costs a lot of money. And, and the environmental uh, aspects, not just on the surrounding environment, but on your eye health and on the amount of radiation that hits you was is was and is becoming a serious concern. So our uh, engineers and our scientists took a look at this and reflective technology has been around. You you may have seen it in like a smartwatch or uh, a Kindle, and that uses a very similar type of technology. Uh, Where we excel was, uh, for example, like Tesla didn't invent the car and didn't invent the battery. But they saw that if you can combine these things and apply them into a market that's already well-established, that you can have an, an unbelievable amount of success. So we did the same or similar with reflective technology. We made it these sizes, which is 32 and a 43 inch, which really hadn't been done, um, especially in many parts of the world. And then we added uh, some of that, the liquid crystal, the, the clarity there with full color and the, the video, which you won't see on a Kindle, um, at least not in the near future, uh, and just, used what was already available to us to make small changes. Now, what makes ours different is the fact that we don't have a backlight. These two displays behind us have no light source of their own whatsoever. Wow. And so we rely on sunlight coming through that window and reflecting off the back of the panel through our LCD to give you that same color. That's incredible. It's like a small change that made an incredible difference. Wow. And so when, when the scientists and the, uh, the engineers discovered this kind of breakthrough that they could apply that tech to just even these size television screens, was that just like the ultimate like aha moment for, for, for you guys at New Vision Display to say, we need to package this up as its own product line, brand it, and go to market with this kind of this whole branded idea thing? Was that kind of like how that kind of came That's together? Absolutely. 100%. When people see these in person, and I know we have the, the screens here and we're trying to record it, th- there is nothing that can compare to seeing this live. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're told how it works, 
you have that aha moment. I don't know if you guys go to a chiropractor or whatever, but if you ever get your, you got that itch or whatever, that kink, and it just goes, everything lines up perfectly. That's that moment. Um, I still get like goosebumps thinking about it because awesome. it does. It, it really, it solves so many things in one simple little kind of component switch because the first is it's sunlight readable. You actually, the brighter it is outside, the better you see these, which is something so foreign to people who are shading their screens that uh, they, you know, that's their first benefit. Then they start to realize that it consumes almost no power because there is no light, that light, and that it's more environmentally friendly. Like it's just, you can't find, you know. Right. In at number eight was our popular 2021 Christmas marketing guide. This was episode 49. There's three main talking points we're going to cover. One, are stores going to be stocking a lot of inventory? Two, will the number of online shoppers continue to rise and stay the same? Three, has a permanent shift taken place in the idea of Black Friday, doorbuster sales in brick and mortar stores? Uh, let's start with question one. Uh, are there are stores going to be stocking a lot of inventory according to retail.com? And uh, what I found out, uh, actually it's retailweek.com, uh, they are. The, 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 the number one thing that actually uh, will, will go down, I think, would be like apparel. But everything else across the board, including toys and games, uh, will be actually stocked. And they project a forecast um, of as much as 10% from uh, the, on like the average of like all the different types of uh, retail stuff in stores. Inventory. Inventory. That's so just, a 10% percent increase from last year. Mm. So we're talking video games, toys, right. products, different things. Like fashion would be up 10%. Health and beauty, okay. 6.8. Toys and games, 5.3. Matter of fact, Toys R Us. So if we, have any, if we have any listeners right now who own a retail store, then based on that article right there, they should follow suit and anticipate foot traffic to their to their brick and mortar store is going to be up a little bit. A little bit. Okay, but not crazy. No. We're not going back to pre-COVID levels just yet. Correct. Okay. Is there any information in that article about when they expect it to go back up to pre-COVID levels by mm -hmm. chance? Unfortunately not. All right. Do you have a personal uh, opinion of that? I just out of curiosity, do you think it'll take... Five years before it gets to pre-COVID levels, what would you say? Uh, I almost want to say it goes by state by state because we've Fair seen enough. like a lot of growth in places like Florida, Texas, Tennessee. Um, you know, California and New York have kind of been questionable because it, it, you know they, they they go into lockdown, then they're away from lockdown, and then they're back into lockdown. So uh, it's it's kind of almost impossible to have a business in states like those. Sure. Uh, but other states are just thriving, and not only in the United States, but other uh, countries are actually investing inside those states uh, for their businesses as well. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I, I would have to uh, agree with you on that. Yeah, I think it is a state-by-state -state maybe uh, effort. So certain states, if you're listening from certain states in the, in, in the United States, or around the world, um, and you're in an area where they are pro-business and they are trying to keep keep the doors open, keep the lights on, keep people flowing and going places, then you you might experience a pretty good boost in foot traffic. Right. Would you say? Well, you know, and uh, about that, I one thing I've I've learned when it comes to <clears throat> the uh, post lockdown, 
people want to be around people. Interesting. Yeah. It, 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 there's that connection. There's that, look, I want to get out of the house. I want to go someplace. Now, granted, you're going to have some people who do want to stay indoors and, and do want to play it safe. Uh, but for the most part, people want to get out. We see that the increase in people going to movie theaters. Uh, I mean, this week alone, there's expected to be a uh, 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 box office break in the uh, Shang-Chi movie uh, to, to break the all-time w- weekend record at this point in time. Hmm. So people want to be out. Well, you know what? That is a perfect segue to the next question here. Will the number of online shoppers continue to rise or stay the same? And I have an article right here from Adweek, which came out. Uh, let's see what the date was this. Um, earlier, this, was, this came out a couple of months ago. Um, and basically, the uh, writer of this article states that they expect from their research um, online sales to continue to increase from 47%. There was a 47% increase in e-commerce last year from the previous year, and they are expecting that number to again increase the same percent for this upcoming season. Okay, so basically... um, this is kind of this is kind of interesting because the article you just found, Gigi, says that some of these brick and mortar retail stores are gonna be increasing their inventory on hand, expecting that walk up traffic to come. Now, what I'm curious about is if that is mainly gonna apply to these more open states. You bring up a very good valid point. Maybe brick and mortar stores in California and New York won't will not increase their inventory levels because there's so much uncertainty whether the local government's going to do another lockdown as as an example right whereas other states such as texas and florida etc uh maybe those brick and mortar stores are going to be more open and and be more expecting of more foot traffic but in any event it goes without a doubt more and more americans and people all over the world are feeling comfortable with the online shopping experience would you agree with that I think so. And and there's more there's more certainty and more comfort that they'll be able to find what they're looking for online from the comfort of their home and they can have it delivered right to their house. In many cases you can even have these presents already gift wrapped. Oh wow. And I will say for myself that is a huge selling point for me. I because not only for the convenience of it, but because I suck at wrapping gifts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, if you have any good gift wrapping tips out there for your boy, Matthew, please uh, leave a comment. Let me know where I can get some, uh, some help on that. Um, but I really appreciate that, that, that they provide that service. So in any event, um, you know, in answer to the question, will um, the number of online shoppers continue to rise. It most certainly will, according to this article and the opinion of myself as well as Gino. Um, and so that is just something that I think we're going to have to get used to uh, as a society that that's going to continue to go up. And if you own a business right now, let me just make this very clear. If you own a business and you have a brick and mortar business and you don't yet have an, a way, an easy way for people to pull out their phone and order your product online, you are losing ground on your competitors, okay? You must invest in an app or a website, a mobile website that complements a person's ability to come into your brick-and-mortar store and buy your product. You must invest in that. You, you know, uh, Squarespace, PayPal, uh, Wix, 
The list goes on and on. There are so many places where you can go to build out a very easy shopping cart type interface website, okay? That's mobile friendly, that works, that's safe and secure for people to put their credit cards in. Please do not waste any more time. Get on that bandwagon and make it happen, right? It is a must in 2021 because it's only going to keep going up from here. In at number seven was our first ever episode featuring a guest, Sergio Oliveri from NetBase. This was episode five. So our special guest, very, very excited to have him on board, Sergio Oliveri. He is a, what's your official title at NetBase? I'm a digital marketing manager. You could just say that. That's you, fine. But he does a little... Social media mostly he, focused on social He does a little bit of everything. And what's unique about Sergio is he also is very, very active in here in the Silicon Valley. And he has a uh, very popular podcast called the What Up Silicon Valley podcast, uh, which I actually had the fortune and the honor of being his first guest <laughs> on that podcast. Love so it. kind of a cool circle of life thing here, right? Lion King circle of life. <laughs> he is now the first guest on our podcast, the Ad Hero. Do you know what the what your brand's help is? Right? This is an interesting question. Mm. You're spending money on these different avenues. Maybe pay-per-click, Facebook ads, influencer marketing, direct mail, maybe a billboard through open display. But what is people's sentiment? What are, what's the community's feeling about your brand, right? Mm-hmm. What are people thinking? Well, Sergio works at a company that can tell you that. So without further ado, Sergio, could you kind of dive in to how NetBase does this and how does it all work? So NetBase is it's, it's social media analytics, Goes beyond social too, it's not just social media, but people are talking about everything on social media. That's where most of the traffic comes from. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, right? Subreddit feeds. Oh yeah, Um, So on social media, there's a lot of of chatter. And where we come in is we get all that data, all these posts mentioned, and we put them, we have an algorithm, you could say, it measures, it breaks down a post, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody posts something about a new iPhone that they hate Samsung, they love their new iPhone, and it's in the same sentence, we could understand the negative sentiment was towards Samsung, the positive sentiment was towards iPhone. So therefore, if you're doing a competitive wow. analysis, right? If you're, com- if, you ha- if you're a phone company and you're, or you're a hardware company and you're looking at all your competitors, you could stack them up side by side on a dashboard you can see who has the most negative, positive sentiment. You can see who are some of the detractors, people who are like talking really bad about your company. You can put them in a bucket. Disappear them in the middle of the night. You can get those negative people, put them in a bucket, and then understand what their affinities are. What do they like? Do they like Kanye? Do they like... And then you can kind of market to them in a, in a new way. So really it's social, social media analytics called social listening, you could say. I love it's like that putting term. a headphone on and listening to your audience on social media, but oh, we we have dashboards. There's a there's a whole diff, there's a whole bunch of use cases. No, yeah. so. can people use crisis? Can, can brands use NetBase to get ideas for future marketing campaigns? Absolutely. So um, ideation is one part of the. There's there's twelve use cases you could say, right? There's that's one of them is understanding what kind of ideas are out there. For instance, um, Taco Bell, right? They're one of our customers years ago. They were looking on social media. They they found what you could do is you could create a word cloud of different any type of brands that are mentioned within your brand. You're gonna see like okay, 
Doritos is mentioned along with Taco Bell. So Taco Bell did this. They created a word cloud with other brands being mentioned, and they noticed Doritos kept coming up. It led to them creating oh. that Doritos Locos Tacos, right? <laughs> wow. So, wow. so having an understanding of what the social audience is saying really creates innovation too. That's one use case. You also mentioned crisis management. That's another big use case. I think Build-A-Bear, we just did a um, how-to guide recently on that at netbase.com. And in the how-to guide, there's, there's how to manage crisis moments. Huh. Oh. And uh, Build-A-Bear, they did a huge campaign about like you pay your age for a bear. Oh yeah, I remember Something that. Like, and it blew yeah. up and it, it they, they were closely monitoring it and understanding, okay, they, they went on the Today Show, but they were using NetBase or any, they were using analytics to understand how do they respond? Do they even need to respond? If it spikes and then it goes back down, back to normal, Guess what? You don't really need to do much. You just, just, just for the moment, just for the listeners the who don't know the Build a Bear, what what was the story behind the Build a Bear? Was it something negative? People didn't like it. The was bad. It, they their yeah. stores got over. They they couldn't handle the the fan. It was complete chaos. Imagine Christmas shopping in an entire mall, okay. but centralized to one store. Wow, it was like that. Yeah, okay. it was it was yeah it was pretty it was really it was bad. Pay so your pay- age for any furry friend in the store was the campaign. Right, so if you're sick, you're getting six bucks for your little, and it, it just overwhelmed them. And it, people it, were it talking like, bad yeah. online, nationally, about that social media was. They did have to end up yeah. this on entire. They did go on the Today yeah. Show. This entire time, I thought you were a builder. Oh, really? <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you were MCU reference? In at number six was a great conversation with Seth Yedoff, CEO of UD Factory. This was episode eleven. I mean, Seth, we, you and I connected probably. Close to a year ago, I think, when when reached out to you about your show, I love the '90s. Yeah, uh, that's right. Biggest, yeah, so since nice. then, yeah, uh, we touched base a couple of times uh, for some of your other projects, um, which you know I'm super interested in those. Actually, I'm really interested in those. Uh, you were recently a speaker at TEDx Luxembourg, and you had some extremely in you know insightful and valuable things to say. So for our listeners and possible viewers, if we get this video aspect right. Without me spoiling everything, could you give us a quick introduction about what it is you do, uh, what is UD Factory, and what's your superpower? <laughs> All right. It is, uh, okay, it's hard to define what I do, but I, uh, you know, I have been an artist manager, uh, produce uh, shows, live shows, promote concerts. Um, I've owned a nightclub, uh, three different restaurants. Uh, you know, I'm sort of a serial entrepreneur, really, and nice. then... I try to keep that, that, you know, uh, entrepreneurial vision along, you know, aligned with my musical interests. And, you know, years ago I was a performer, so I was a guitar player and I was a magician, believe it or not, and toured around the world doing that. And we don't discuss that generally, (laughs) but, um, it's a dark time in my life, but, um, uh, yeah. So, so like right now I have two shows running in Vegas. I have a show called tenors of rock that's at, uh, planet Hollywood. Uh, it just finished up two and a half years at Harris, and we just moved it over about six months ago. Huh. And then I have a show at uh, Bally's called Misbehave Game Show, and it is a oh. ridiculous, crazy time. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's. Um, I, I didn't start the show. I, I was brought in at one point to look at it, and I said, "Okay, I only have ten minutes, so I have to be somewhere." And I, my wife and I were there, and we stayed like forty-five minutes, and we had to drag ourselves out of there because we had to leave. And it's really the most fun I've ever had watching a show. So in wow. 19 years of time, what would you say, how has Vegas changed from 
you know, the 1950s, 60s, 70s of Vegas that they made so many movies about to now, like, is it, is it like corporate Vegas now? Is yeah, this everything I mean, run by so, big corporations? This is a tough one for me, and, this, and you don't have enough time on this podcast for me to get into this, but, but I think the corporatization of Vegas is, is becoming its downfall. And um, there are just some things that you can't pro- accurately measure on a spreadsheet. Mm. You know, they're, uh, especially now when like there, there's something important about, about any city, but I'm just going to speak about Vegas, about it maintaining its, its, uh, uniqueness as a destination. Right. And I think as gaming shows up all over the country, um, you know, uh, Vegas is unfortunately because of corporatization becoming homogenized. You know, we are watching a, a target get built on the strip right now. We're watching, we have two Outback Steakhouses. We have a Ross Dress for Less. I mean, you know, name a city that you can't go to those in. So why would you come to Vegas for that? So, you know, I think restaurants will stand out here, uh, you know, Vegas and New York pretty much for the best restaurants in the country. But, you know, it's just like, because every piece of the city has a bottom line that they watch now, I feel like you get wallet raped from the moment you step off the plane. And so you no longer have that free cash to gamble. You no longer get that that vibe of like going to see a free show or get a free meal or have that cool experience you can't have anywhere else. Right. And they're doing new stuff here in entertainment. Uh, and some of it I really, really like. But I don't think they're doing anything that's new enough to drive enough customers to make the big difference. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're driving enough customers to steal people from my show to go watch Lady Gaga but not enough to bring so many more people to town that we all benefit. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact numbers. I'd have to look it up, but uh, compared to let's say 10, 15 years ago, we've, I'm guessing, but we've got to have at least double the number of seats to fill in shows. And we certainly don't have double the number of visitors. And now they're building a stadium for the Raiders and they're building another uh, arena, which will be our one, two, three, four, like fifth or sixth arena here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and Basically, we're the size of San Antonio at the end of the day. So, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's weird to watch. I think that there's a lot that could be done to make Vegas unique, to drive traffic. And I think that uh, – and I actually believe as a music guy, I have a whole plan in my head that I don't certainly don't have enough zeros to be able to fund. But where what's happening in the music industry with record labels, I think there's a way for Vegas to get involved in sort of fixing that whole model, business model. Uh, getting away from labels and getting into venue owners that are uh, uh, developing talent. Well, with everybody vying for these audiences, um, I mean, how, uh, I guess I have two questions. Kind of first is how do you pull your segment away, you know, to come and see your shows and, and to benefit your business? And then secondly, just what are the, some of the mechanisms that you, you use to, to do that? So, uh, the the really honest answer is is probably that I don't exactly know because it's changing so quickly that we're all we're trying a lot of new things and so the way that the thing that I have that you know let's say Live Nation doesn't have when they do all these big residency shows is uh, we're scrappier and smaller and while that's a bad thing in many cases and sometimes it's a good thing because it's personal connection you know I have a team of people that goes out and meets with the concierges up and down the strip and talks to the various ticket vendors, you know, misbehaved game show we talked about. Um, in the last year I've spent 
virtually zero dollars marketing it because it's a very hard show to market. It's harder to describe unless you can throw sick money at marketing it. So instead, I pull back on marketing. The people who have actually seen it, like the people who sell the tickets, love it. So they tell people when they say, what else should we see? Oh, you got to see Misbehave. It's, it's hilarious. And so that was a weird lesson, like pull back my marketing, be more successful in that show. Um, so the scrappiness helps. And something, you know, Arish, that you and I have talked about in the past is uh, when I can't blanket the city, you know, like when Gwen Stefani's here, you see the billboards everywhere, the trucks driving up and down the strip with her picture, you know, uh, Caesars puts her picture on every single casino. They don't do that for my, you know, 300 seat showroom. So how do I compete? Well, I mean, I, it's, it's a very targeted approach. It's um, when you guys deal in digital display. So, uh, you know, Friday is when, if you, check out the uh, Visitor Convention Bureau uh, statistics, Friday is when most people arrive. So between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m., I might be putting up digital billboards near the airport. Mm. And it's not the same as, as blanketing for the week, but I'm targeting when the most people arrive and trying to get them there. And then I have digital taxi tops I've done, and I've only done them during dinner rush hour. And you know, it all adds up to, for a small group of people, they get multiple impressions. But a large group of people won't see anything. Mm. so it's just uh, sort of choosing your battles uh in the same way you would with you know online uh like programmatic marketing where it's obviously even more targeted but where you're you know you're going after a customer that you believe likes this show you do you know is is the right demographic at least is a lookalike demographic um you go over travel and tenders that are coming to vegas so we, we are trying to take the same approach in outdoor marketing that we're doing with online marketing we are down to our top five moments of the Ad Hero podcast. Coming in hot at number five was Mike Lee, CEO of Manticore, explaining how to rebrand your company from scratch. This was episode 20. And you know what I, the, my favorite part about, because Mike, he's always got, his, his swag alert is always like off, right? Dang, he's he's rolling in here. He's got the scarf. He's got the shirt, the hat, glasses. He looks like he's straight out of Hollywood, rolling in here, ready for the pod. I mean, dude, I, I love your look, man. Dude, I love your dude, look. Dude, like, just because you love. can't see me, like I, I, I try and swag out at all times. <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to hear it in my voice. So Mike, Mike is someone I met here in the Valley a uh, long time ago and uh, kind of kept a, a pulse on his on his uh, work and kind of where he's been, and he's going to get more into that. But essentially, he is the founder and CEO of a creative marketing agency yeah. group. Uh, actually, several products, several things. Uh, but he's doing big things, and um, he's definitely a mover, a shaker here in the Valley. Thank you. And uh, that's what we like to have here on the podcast. I appreciate it. But that. he recently did a, something huge, which was a rebranding of his main uh, company. And uh, we wanted to have this episode be focused on the opportunities and the challenges of rebranding your company name. So if you're listening out there and you have a small business and you are considering changing the name of your company for any reason whatsoever, uh, there's going to be some inherent you know, bumps in the road, some things that you're going to have to overcome, some challenges there. But there's also going to be a lot of opportunity um, and kind of starting fresh, a new name, new thing. So we just thought it'd be dope to have Mike on the show and kind of like tell us some more about that. So I don't know, man, without further ado, you want to give us even more of a little bio, a little wow. background and give us the whole rundown? Cool. Sweet. Um, I know you East Coast people probably won't care about this as far as where I'm from, but I'm born and raised in San Jose, California. Um, 
and I local high school, went to San Jose State for engineering, started my company pretty much when I was in high school, and then started to do, you know, a lot more expansion work when I went to college. Can we know uh, what high school? Oh, quick. I don't know if I should say that on the interwebs. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I went to Valley Christian. I'm a proud Oh, guy. shout hey, out Warriors. Valley Christian Warriors. I'm a very proud Valley Christian guy. We'll you tag know. you. Uh, all my buddies over uh, going live are, are all MIDI boys, but Valley Christian's where it's at. <laughs> Sorry, Valley Christian's where it's at. Um, but, yeah, private school kid. Um, you know, I started out doing a lot of stuff at Valley in the space program. So we were the first high school in the world to put a fully automated experiment on the International Space Station. Um, got me a full ride to San Jose State for engineering. Nope. And, um, you know, saved a lot of money going to college and put that money toward my company. And, you know, now we're here today. And, um, and what was the original name of the company? Oh, yeah. So originally it was Cold Brew Creative. Um, the reason why I came up with that name was because um, we were a bunch of creatives that loved to drink cold brew. So I spent <laughs> a lot of money on designers for craft coffee and craft beers. I didn't know beer could be $15 a glass. So. <laughs> it's crazy. So someone listening out there who's considering doing the exact same thing, or maybe they they just have completed updating their brand to something brand new, what are the immediate kind of checkboxes that you saw that you needed to do to like let people know, let the world know? Yeah, so the biggest thing that people, the biggest mistake that people make is that they try and make all new everything, right? There's a lot of things that you, that, that you can actually re- reuse. So your Instagram pages, you can just change your names and make an announcement. Um, your email list, you can just change your name and make an announcement and keep your list and your following. Mm. Um, the biggest thing that people, I feel like, don't do, it's letting people know that you're going to do a name change. Like, hey, guys, mm. um, you know, we're changing our name, but we're going to still offer the same services. You know, because people just go, okay, we're doing name change, and people are like, wait, who the hell is this guy? Mm. Right? Um, so you have to look at that as well. Um, another thing is figuring out why you're doing a rebrand, right? So my reason was because people would – it was conflicting with my other company, Mike Spruce, at Mike Spruce underscore on Instagram. Um, and uh, <laughs> we have the best coffee in, in all of Silicon Valley. Um, anyway, sorry, Phils. So, so for us, it was a matter of brand confliction um, as well as service confliction. So um, I want people to see my name and say, okay, wait, who are these guys and what can they do for our company or how can someone on our team help them out, you know, mm. type of deal. And if the first thing that comes to your mind is cold brew and we don't sell cold brew, you know, I was on a call with a big company and they're like, wow, I was looking forward to drinking cold brew. So, Ooh. you know, and so I had to send them some Mike's brews in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you actually did pre, like, are you saying you, like kind of did like a pre-announcement to everyone yeah, like so, hey heads up in january 2020 we are now going to be called this yeah so uh, you need to charge your battery yeah we're all getting that way yeah and, we're good uh, go ahead all right cool yeah so so um for me i made first i talked to some really um people some really close people that i you know really would like to get their insight from so mm-hmm. i talked to matthew i talked to a bunch of other people um and i was Appreciate like hey what do, you th- what do you think about this name like you know here's some want to run this by you get some ideas and then once i got a really good buy-in from most everybody um i was like all right cool let's go and make this change um and one thing that um one of my mentors told me he was like hey um it's all about what situation you're in with your company as well mm-hmm. Right. So if if most of your customers buy from you, it doesn't matter what your name is. People buy from, you know, you and your personality. Um, So a lot of my customers buy from Mike Lee, not necessarily from Cold Brew or from Manticore. So um, now that we're bringing on more people on our team in terms of sales and development and things of that nature, uh, we have to have a household name, you know, Mm -hmm. that. 
people can relate to and see. So if you go down the street and you see, you know, or or if you're driving down the freeway and you see Manticore on an ad-symboled billboard, you're going to know what it is. Now, I have a question for you. Uh, being in this whole, like, new year, new decade, I've uh, heard some experts explaining how branding is even more important than it was even years ago. So what is a tidbit you can give to maybe small to medium-sized businesses who need that help and that extra push into getting their branding by, uh, out there? Is it, is it through social media? Is it through digi everything digital? It, what would you suggest? Yeah, 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 it also depends on like how much you want to spend, right? So mm -hmm. um, putting together a good marketing campaign based on your audience and the people that you want to target is how you're really going to be successful in this game in terms of branding. So for me personally, like there's there's my brand as Mike Lee, like Mike Lee, the guy who's in Silicon Valley doing all this crazy stuff, right? <laughs> and 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 there's my brand as Manticore, and then there's you know the other lines that I have. For me personally. As Mike Lee, like I know my brand represents really well on Instagram, so I focus on that heavily, right? I try and post once a week. Um, I try and do as much as I can, work with other people on Instagram, going live, doing stories, all this stuff, because I know that's where my audience is at. Uh, for Manticore, I know that we're really big on B2B, right? We have very few B2C customers, but we're really big on B2B. I know my B2B audience is primarily on like LinkedIn. Like my B2B audience isn't really on Instagram, or I know my B2B audience is at certain events where we should sponsor or at certain events where we should have a table or booth. Mm. So for a small business, like for instance, if you're a local restaurant in the Rose Garden here in San Jose, like what can you do to be, you know, that really homegrown place? Like, is it, is it like a every door direct mailer campaign that goes to everyone in your area? Um, is it, you know, you want to run a special like in the middle of the street on an A-frame, like, what is it that like you can do where you can be that person? It's really looking at what you have to offer to the people around you. In at number four was our first ever live audience taping with Alex Arkhanelski, CEO of Break Free Tech, who was featured on ABC's Shark Tank. This was episode 43. Okay. All right, Alex, uh, you're on the hot seat, buddy. Here we go. Let's go. Right. Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. Crack those knuckles. So uh, Anu gave us a great uh, kind of overview of Break Free, but we were, uh, Gino, do you want to go take it away with the first question? Yeah, before? sure. Uh, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, how do you conceive the idea of your product and why did you feel the market was ready for it? Well, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll try and keep it concise. Um, this product really started when I was working with Dave Haddon on my, during my internship period with him. He had me working on a few different ideas that he was pursuing, but one of them was this autonomous brake light for cars. He kind of envisioned this like light bar that would go um, on the back window of a car. And um, what it would do is it just would grab more attention from drivers when you're braking harder than normal, because, you know, um, I think Dave was driving on the freeway and uh, almost, I, I don't remember if he almost rear-ended somebody or almost somebody almost hit him, but um, he felt like, you know, if there was something there to kind of tell the drivers behind you that you're doing something other than regularly slowing down, that would be beneficial. So hmm. um, he had me kind of um, doing a lot of market research, um, doing patent research, doing all kinds of things, learning about uh, product development, that kind of stuff. Um, in my research, what we found was that, you know, most car drivers felt really safe in their car. You know, they're 
in the motorcycle world we call car drivers cagers and then that's because you're sitting in a giant cage made of metal and you already have plenty of brake lights and a lot of uh, car manufacturers are now coming out with modular brake lights that kind of blink every time you hit the brakes and um, there was a bit of a liability issue as well that we found that you know we found out that if you get into a rear end collision, the rear window is usually something that shatters first and then, then you have a projectile flying through the car. So that was a no-go. Um, being a motorcycle rider myself, uh, I've been commuting to San Jose State on my motorcycle for a number of years. Um, you know, I pitched Dave on the idea of what if we potentially look into the motorcycle market? You know, I've had a fair share of close calls and it would be a lot more beneficial to me as a motorcycle rider to be seen out there on those roads. Um, having some way to be seen extra visibility would be um, a huge bonus. So we pivoted the idea, um, ended up uh, pursuing the idea for a few months. Then um, our internship was kind of closing. Um, Dave didn't really want to pursue the idea. So I pitched Dave on, a, you know, what if we co-founded this together? What if I put together a business plan and try to compete at San Jose State business plan competition to see if the ideas got legs? Just maybe there's a little bit of money that we could win. So we decided to do that. And then we uh, ended up taking second place in the uh, San Jose State business plan competition. We got the best written business plan award. Mm -hmm. And that kind of that's how it started. So um, we've done a ton of research. We've done a lot of interviewing of industry professionals, people um, at retail level, um, gone to a few trade shows. So we've done a lot of research to validate the fact that, you know, this is an actual pain point for a lot of writers. This is something that would be needed. So that gave us a lot of confidence in going forward. Excellent. Well, when did you first learn about the casting opportunity for Shark Tank? Well, um, one of my friends, um, it was right after CES in 2019, um, she told me that, you know, I went to a casting call for Shark Tank and there's a huge line out there and um, it, there's casting calls all over the country for the show. Um, you know, it was kind of a wild chance of an idea, but at the time I was thinking, you know, what what's... Um, what's the risk? You know, I, I, I can just go out and apply for one. So I ended up signing up for one that was going to be in Nebraska in Lincoln, Nebraska. I currently live in Denver, Colorado. So for me, it was an eight hour drive to get out there and give my one minute little quick pitch to their um, casting members. And you don't really hear anything after that. So that's essentially how I found out about it. Um, connected to that, it's kind of our next question is the application casting process. So you, you go out there and it's a one minute pitch to, is it to a room full of people, a single person, something like that? Well, um, so there's everybody that's, that wants to try and pitch their idea. They had to apply, um, for the show. And then when you show up there, so you're already kind of on a list, um, they pull you in in groups, I believe. And, um, you know, one at a time you get to go up to a booth with a lady just kind of sitting there looking at you and then you give her your one minute pitch and they kind of give you a heads up telling you, you know, you're not going to get much reaction from the person. So don't take it as a yes or a no, but, um, they, they call it the resting pitch face that they give you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, definitely got that. So I, I wasn't really sure whether or not I was going to get a call back. So that's, that's how it went. So eight an eight hour drive to get the resting pitch face and then eight hours back. 
Yep. It was fun. It was a good time. <laughs> I was practicing my pitch the entire drive there. And there on the way go. back, I was just audio booking it all the way home. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, 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 well, what we see on TV now, is that really how it goes or is it like a lot more to it or is it like a lot less? Tell us like what happens behind the scenes when you're on behind the scenes. Well, when you're on stage. I'm not sure exactly how much of the behind the scenes stuff I could say, but there's a lot more. Um, it is a few days process while you're out there. Um, let's see. Well, my, my bad, actually, uh, in this it, logical question is so the, the one minute, uh, one minute pitch, you drive all the way back. Uh, was it six months, eight months till you heard that, okay, we actually want you to go to the next phase now? Was there a couple phases before you go out to LA for the taping? We kind of jumped over that part, but I'm realizing that's kind of critical. <laughs> part of the yeah, story. no, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely a lot more than just going out and giving a one minute pitch and then boom, you're on Shark Tank. It was, it, it was a very um, uh, drawn out process. I would say there's, there's a few steps. Um, they sent us an email, told us that, you know, we like what we heard at the, um, at the casting call. We'd like to see a video. Um, they, um, you know, have you answer a bunch of, uh, business related questions on video and they want to see how you appear on the camera, um, whether or not your business is that appealing. They do a lot more research into your business. So essentially you're over time, you're submitting your entire business plan to them. So they know pretty much everything ahead of time. Um, not the sharks, the, the casting folks, and then they make the decision who they want to pick and and at what time they want you to be there. It's almost like, it's almost like, like, like angel investors or something like that. Like having one of their, uh, interns, like pre-vet you out maybe before you get into a venture capital meeting or something like that, kind of like a pre-screen process of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. They, they want you to succeed out there and they want to put out products that, you know, sharks would want to potentially hear about. I mean, it is a show, so there's definitely the entertainment factor for sure, but they want to make sure that that's the ideas that they put out there definitely have, uh, have a potential of getting an investment. That's interesting because he has a great business Mm -hmm. and a great product, but once in a while you see someone on there selling snake oil. I was just going to say that. (laughs) It's so, it's interesting to me. Thank you, Gino. I, I feel exactly the same way. Like when you say that to me and how many steps somebody had to go through some of these pitches that you see on the program are like, well, now how the hell did that person make the screening process? Right. Right. So what, what, what would your thoughts be on that? I'm not sure, you know, I'm not the producers, <laughs> so it's hard to say exactly what Well, you did say the entertainment value. Yeah. The entertainment definitely has to be there. Yeah. So, you know, it's a TV show after all. So they have to know, get some to be entertaining. They have to get some legitimate businesses and then some businesses are just too far out. Right, right. I suppose. In at number three was an awesome discussion on why brands matter with branding expert Lee Rafkin and featured our first ever guest host, Andrea Henley. This was episode 42. Welcome to the show and Hero Podcast. I'm Andrea Henley, your host, sitting in for Gino and Matthew. Thank you so much. I had so much fun on their show. They asked me to be a guest host. And when I thought about the topic, I said, you know, what is my favorite topic to discuss? And it's brands, 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 brands. So welcome to the show, everybody. And I'll tell you more about my guest um, and why brands matter. So on today's show, we were talking to Lee Rafkin, 
who is a branding and marketing communications consultant based in New York. In addition to advising leading brands like Discovery Networks at Estee Lauder, um, Medtronic, Nestle, and PepsiCo, very impressive, he named and branded several out-of-home USA organizations, Outfront and Geopath, and BoldSight. So, man, what, is, yes. what a year. The topics that we're talking about are branding. There's yes. been some changes with some historical brands. Yes. I saw you wrote a new article in regard to that. One of the brands being Aunt Jemima. Right, right. Right. I did, I did write an article about it this summer when everything was going down, when, when things were really superheated. And, and, you know, it was like, uh, does art uh, 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 follow life or does life follow art? You know, um, it, was, it, was, um, it was remarkable. It didn't surprise me, though, because, you know, a brand is really uh, an idea in the mind of your target audience. And, and, and it didn't surprise me at all in terms of what was happening this summer because ideas were changing, you know, and people were changing. Right. And brands really are a reflection of people and a reflection of society sometimes brands lead sometimes they follow these brands that needed to go through a rebrand clearly were following you know uh, but they were a reflection of the age and, and brands uh, like a lot of culture and popular culture really really does kind of uh, reflect you know the people the, the consumer and the consumer wanted and demanded change finally yeah so I, I think it's definitely a good initiative on their part yeah, it was Aunt Jemima that rebranded, right, to Pearl uh, Milling Company, I think it is. Uncle Ben's you gotta get used rebranded. To that for sure. Uncle Ben's, uh, Ben's rebranded, I Uncle think, ben. to uh, Ben's original. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Potato Head, they took the gender out of it, and now it's just <laughs> Potato Head. You know, so there are a lot of brands that, um, that have been kind of caught up in, in this whole social equity story, and... Um, it's about time, you know, because brands really, you know, need to, to lead more than, than, than follow. Do you feel like because we have been so conditioned to, you know, we're conditioned to this brand, Aunt Jemima, and grabbing it, do you think that this is going to help them with market share? Or is there a place now where they could be disrupted by maybe a new maple syrup that is relevant today that could sweep up some of that market share? due to the rebrand what are your thoughts it's a great it's a great question you know brands are both rational and emotional and people buy brands for a set of rational and emotional reasons and uh brands like aunt jemima i think uh uh were more of an emotional than a rational brand people weren't buying aunt jemima because it had this character i think they were buying this brand because they had an emotional connection maybe some fond memories of of eating you know pancakes as a kid It, it really kind of reflects uh a different age, so to speak, right? Um, and so with a rebrand, I think um, what you're really kind of getting at is people's emotions. And it's going to, I think the jury is still out if they're going to still have that same connection that they had uh, before. Um, you know, uh, these are big, big brands. Aunt Jemima, I think, uh, is, is owned by, um, um, is it Quaker or Unilever or, or one of the big companies? Uh, I know Uncle Ben's that rebranded is owned by Mars. Um, this is, you know, these are billion dollar companies and these are big uh, battleships that are very slow to turn around and, and, and slow to respond. And I think all of these big companies were kind of slow uh, to respond, but it's a good thing that they did respond. So whether, whether Aunt Jemima is going to keep up being the number one brand in the category is yet to be seen, you know, uh, yes. it's about how people transfer that emotional bond that they had with the old brand to the new brand. And I think we're going to see 
we're going to see. I think we just, yeah, we've just always, we've been accustomed to it. We've been used to it. We were grab it on the shelf. So having that marketing behind it, um, it could help or hurt them. So it also opened the space for somebody else. Another yeah. brand real quick that I was thinking yeah. about, I'm, I love household items, yeah. Old Spice. Um, yeah. Very historical brand. Uh, grandpa's used it, my husband, but it's it's really connected now with the younger generation. What do you what do you make of that? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, they've had tremendous success with their event brand, and it wasn't for a cultural reason. It was just trying to connect with a new audience. Well, you what are know, your thoughts um, on that? Um, Old Spice was clearly, uh, you know, your father's Oldsmobile. It was an old fashioned legacy brand. I think there were, again, an emotional connection uh, because it reminded people maybe of um, a family member, my dad or my grandpa who used to use it, but it was clearly a very old fashioned brand. I believe when I was a kid, the, the ads had uh, a sailor character that represented Old Spice. So clearly the brand needed to stay relevant, right? And to create, you know, relevancy. The brand used kind of humor and edgy humor and uh, irony, and and they really kind of became a lot more relevant through the use of humor. So humor can do that because humor is one of uh, one of the highest order emotional things that people feel and respond to. And and um, in the case of P and G, which owns which owns Old Spice, I think they did a great job. I think that what's interesting to me is they have they kept the they kept the logo the same, right? But the conversation changed. Yeah. I think it's great because you don't lose your core consumer that's already been accustomed to this brand and, and has been buying it. But They're then, most likely dead. Huh? That, that consumer is most likely dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me, yeah, they're dead, so we have to engage with new ones. Yeah. Um, exactly. But anyways, I always thought of it as like, ew, stinky, but they have brand new products too. That I think I actually, I think, ooh, stinky would be a really good tagline for the brand. <laughs> but this smells ooh. good. So, I mean, I'm not really the demo for this, but I thought it was an interesting conversation piece. Yeah, but no, I mean, I think I think it's, I, honestly, just to, to take the humor out of it, they survived. And there are a lot of kind of old legacy brands that don't survive because they're no longer relevant. But Old Spice, they invested a lot of money by creating an all new character, which really personified the brand. They really executed really well. They changed the conversation from, oh, that's an old brand to, oh, that's a really funny, ironic, edgy brand and yeah. people responded and so i think it's uh, i think it's great i personally don't use the brand color <laughs> well you should no but hats off to aunt jemima and old spice for making sure. the changes necessary Absolutely. that they needed but Absolutely. let's jump into why we're here you yeah. are the expert in branding and marketing and i'd love to talk yeah. about this topic i've so, done it a lot <laughs> i don't know if i'm an expert lee why do brands matter that's the question. That's why we're here. We want to hear from you, your expertise, your narrative on that. So, you know, to back it up, I really do believe this. Brands are, they're not a tagline. They're not an ad campaign. Um, they're not a logo. Brands, as I said, are an idea in the mind of the target audience and, and knowing what that idea is and figuring out how you want to get from point A to point B, literally from what you currently are to what you desire to be takes a lot of work and, and um, it takes a lot of, uh, of great, you know, branding work. So brands are an idea and how you kind of mold that idea is really what they're all about. And I like to say that brands are, are um, 
are really four things. They communicate who you are and what you stand for and why people should care, right? Very important. They are kind of a shorthand that people think about you. You're offering people a way to think about you. You're, you're giving them an idea in their mind, a way to remember and recommend you. They also really are kind of like an internal uh, manifesto because they guide decision-making. They rally people around a single voice and a single, a single vision and a, and a single brand. And they also act as kind of a strategic roadmap that kind of helps a brand or a company uh, make decisions. You know, when your brand is, when your decision is on brand, you know, it's the right decision. So if you're living up to the values of what your brand is and what it stands for, um, you can kind of use that as, as guardrails or a map. Um, and so it's both an internal tool and an external tool. But brands are, are really, you know, they're not, um, they're not how they look, how they sound they're really a much deeper emotional thing. They're an idea in the mind and the heart of, 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 of a consumer. And so, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all, you know, based on what we were just talking about, that brands, you know, have had to change because brands really are uh, ideas and, and, and ideas need to evolve. And that I think the brands are that bright light, right? That make you feel a certain way. You know, if I'm, you know, identifying, I'm like drinking a Starbucks, you know, coffee versus a McDonald's, you know, the it's, coffee's coffee, but the, it's how it makes you feel, how you identify with it. So I think, you know, what, what is the percentage, I guess, of, you know, people that have a great brand? What's, what's the, what's the value of having a strong brand versus maybe a, a mediocre brand? Um, it's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. You know, there are brands who are leaders and there, are, there, and there are brands who are challengers and each one kind of plays a different role. You know, leader brands really kind of put a stake in the sand and say, this is what I stand for. This is what makes me different. And this is why people should care. And then because they're the leader, they may have a first, you know, a first mover advantage. They may have the largest market share in, in, a, in a particular category. And then other brands, challenger brands have to kind of pick off little pieces of, of what, the, what, the, what the, the, the leader brand stands for to kind of create a niche on their own. So, you know, great brands make a stand, tell people what they stand for, um, make an emotional connection with the consumer and, and really, yeah, and really put a, a stake in the sand and say, I own this. This is what makes me different. This is why people really should care. So you know, great brands are also brands that, that continue to evolve and stay relevant. And, and that's the eternal challenge of a, of a brand manager is to how to, to know your audience well enough so that you can stay relevant for that audience moving forward. And that's really the process of branding. Brands are living, breathing things that constantly evolve and, and uh, they need to be, you know, they need to be worked on. They need to have some renovation, just like a house has to have some renovation. What would you say to a a brand that's doing pretty well, status quo, maybe grows a little percentage year over year, but kind of stagnant, complacent. You know, sometimes people don't know how to get out of their own way. Knowing that they're capturing a big part of the market share, but how do they get to that next level? What goes into a rebrand? What do you do when you sit down and say, okay, you're status quo, but that's not good enough there's more market share out there to get what goes into those conversations to initiate a rebrand, um, you know, based on what you've done in your experience and rebranding some major companies and taking it's such, it's such a risk, but it's such a high reward and payoff. What is your process of, you know, what goes into a rebrand, I guess. 
the very first thing is consumer insight and knowing your customer, whether it's B2C or B2B, understanding um, the value exchange and the connection that you have with the consumer um, and understanding who your consumer is. It's all driven by consumer insight. So for me, I'm always looking for the white space opportunity, the unmet needs. This sounds like a cliche, but the things that keep the consumer up at night, because what those things are, are really opportunities for a brand to kind of own that idea. So it's really the first and foremost, it's understanding, you know, who your audience is, who your consumer is, what they stand for, what keeps them up at night, what they worry about, what needs are not being met, and continuing to renovate so that you can meet those needs. Um, then I, so the first question I always ask is, who is my audience? Then the second okay. question I always ask is, the second question I always ask is, you know, what business am I in? And I don't mean, um, you know, I'm in the outdoor advertising business or I'm in the automotive sales business. I mean, in a much broader sense, what kind of a elevated service am I providing to my consumer? You know, um, one of my favorite brands is Nike and Phil Knight famously said, you know, for the longest time, I thought Nike was an athletic shoe and apparel company, uh, but I was wrong because what I really learned to, to what I really learned over the course of my career is that Nike was really an experience company and it was all about enhancing people's sense of, uh, you know, of accomplishment uh, through fitness and lifestyle. So I'm not just a shoe company. I bring people you know, um, um, a much higher order benefit because I'm about the experience and elevating the experience of fitness and helping people achieve, you know, greatness through their own personal, you know, personal lifestyle and fitness. So, so he understood that, that, that brands really need to place themselves at a much higher level. And, and the thing that I would say is that, is that consumers uh, choose among brands, they don't choose a brand. So you walk into a supermarket or a store, or today it's really you log on to Amazon, and you're not just selecting a single brand, you're looking at a whole uh, set of competitors within a space, and broadening who you are and what you stand for allows you to compete in a much bigger way. So that's, that's the second question I ask. The third question I always ask is, what do I stand for? You know, that's the traditional positioning question. What do I stand for? Um, you know, what's my purpose? Um, why should people care about what I do? Um, beyond just making money, what do I stand for? And, and, and what, you know, what drives me every day? So that's important. And the fourth question is what makes me different? Hopefully what you stand for makes you different, but differentiation from other competitors, both near in and far out is really super important. And then finally, the last question I ask is, you know, why should people care? And that's the toughest question to answer of all. Uh, that's really all about emotion and emotional content and, and what your brand stands for and the connection you make with people. People care about certain brands and they don't really care about other brands. And I've always wondered, why is that? You know, two brands that offer the same thing, like, you know, Toyota versus Nissan or, or BMW versus, you know, Audi. You know, BMW is a great car, but it stands for something. It stands for maybe engineering performance or, or exhilaration or the thrill of driving a really tight, fast, great, you know, kind of sports car. That is an emotional thing that it stands for. Um, and that's what it, that's why people should care about it. And that's why people do buy, you know, when you look at a car, you run the numbers, you look at the gas mileage, you look at, you know, um, what the cost to own is possibly. Those are all rational things. But the reason you buy that car is because you love it and you have made some sort of an emotional connection to it. So I ask those five questions, you know, who's my audience, who's really audience? who they are, meaning yeah. what they worry about, uh, who, what, what business am I in, 
number two. Yeah, exactly. What do I stand for? What makes me different? And why should people care? That's like an essential kind of brand audit. And that will, that will provide, you know, 90% of the answers. And then, you know, for a company like Outfront, you develop uh, territories that are based on that strategy. So we discovered through that process that Outfront really stood for innovation and being, you know, forward-looking and being, you know, innovative in the soul of a, of a fast-moving, fast-charging organization. Um, and we just, we landed on this concept of being out in front. And the beauty of naming, because it's both it's both art and science, but the art part of it is finding a word that really people have, again, have an emotional response to that stands for something and makes them different and makes people care about it. Um, Outfront was a great name because we were able to use out in the name, which kind of said, hey, I, if you own the word, you own the category. So if I have Outfront in my brand name, I'm hoping that that makes you own the category a little bit. And then out front is a great idea because it makes you think of the brand as being out in front, always leading from the front, being innovative, being fast charging, that sort of thing. So, so everything kind of starts from strategy. And then um, for out front, we develop a a bunch of naming territories that were based on that strategy of being a leader and being out front. That's how we finally got to Out front. And I was at CBS outdoor with, they, they um, separated from CBS and yeah. it's a totally they spun it up. different company now. It's a totally different company. We were always proud of the brand CBS, CI, or it was so branded, but I don't even remember that now because their branding now is so strong and they're such a different company and such a different conversation, you know, and they hats off to you for doing such a great job with that. Um, and speaking of that, I mean, they, you know, they separated from CBS. Now they're out front. Most people don't even know that because if they got in the industry, you know, recently, they don't even remember that. In it, number two was a crucial discussion on why ad design matters with billboard design expert Eric Murr of K. Gary's Outdoor. This was episode 27. This week's guest is Eric Murr, the VP of sales and marketing of Kegaris Outdoor Advertising in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Say what up, Eric. What up? Thank you so much, gentlemen. I'm uh, thrilled to be here, and I am most impressed among all of it that you got the name Kegaris spelled or, and uh, sounded correctly, so well done. Right. We well. don't mess around here on pronunciation. I've found that if you do billboard advertising correctly, it never fails. In fact, that's in our media kit, is mm-hmm. that uh, successful billboard advertising never fails. The key is actually determining and, and identifying what success and failure looks like. Because a lot of times expectations are that revenue will go up instantaneously or there'll be a direct correlation between the awareness that you achieve in outdoor advertising and the spending of money that takes place at the store level. Know what you're attempting to accomplish and realize that billboards will always raise awareness for your business. The key is whether you can understand that that awareness will translate into the ultimate behavioral changes that you're looking for and need so that you can have a return on investment for the dollars that you spend. Especially for, for uh, salespeople working on small, um, and, and even really it, it's just customer service in general. I think that most people really miss the mark when they sell. It, again, it comes down to people are bringing the wrong information to the table 
and that's not persuasive. It's, just, it's really the same fundamentals of outdoor advertising being successful. You know, are you, are you bringing, you know, cause, cause a buyer will tell you, buyers want to buy. They hate to be sold, but they love to buy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what is it, what was, what, are, when is it that we love to buy? Um, I love to buy food when I'm hungry, right? <laughs> I love to do that. I love to put my head on a pillow at night when I'm, when I'm exhausted. I love to do that. So you put a hotel room when I'm exhausted and there's no other hotel room, I'm thrilled to death. You give me the new, sh- the new Jordan shoes and I'm thrilled to death if, if uh, you know, I'm a kid and that's what I've loved, you know? So, mm. you know, I think when we talk about selling, we're often really uh, missing the mark and we go in there and we're like, here's my shit, you know, here's right. all my stuff and here's the data. And I'm like, time out. I don't give a shit about data. I want a billboard to stick it to the, the guy that left my business and went and started his own pool business five, five blocks down the street. I want to put a billboard in front of his. Let's just start talking about that because then I'm going to need, I'm going to sell to you what you're after. I'm going to speak, I'm going to meet you where you're at, you know, and then I'm going to grow it from there. And then I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about how great this is. And then I'm going to see how much money you're spending radio and TV and print. But right then and there, you know, I'm going to be sure that I understand what the hell you want. That's right. And philosophy has really trained me in that regard, which is like, I'm peeling back the layers of the onion. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, well, I just want to, you know, I want to buy a billboard and I'm happy if, if people see it. I'm like, Time out. You're telling me if you spend five grand for this program and not a single person mentions it and your sales don't go up, you're happy? No, well, no, I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. So what is your expectation of, you know, and, right. and, so, and you really start digging and peeling away at it. And, and I got a ton to say on that shit. No, good. Real quick though. You, uh, um, great point too, by the way, a few minutes ago when you said that having people talk about what they want, we have a thing like that over here too. We, we, uh, we have them talk about like their love. So what they love to talk about, what they want to talk about, you know, that lets the guard down. It, it builds, you know, help builds rapport. I mean, there's a lot of stuff it kind of goes into. And uh, the next thing you know, they're buying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that, that psychology level is great. So I think that have, we can definitely do a whole episode around that. And they'll just be like lots of things to bring up on that. I, again, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's, it's cause it's, it's complicated, but, uh, great selling is about, uh, identifying the core uh, to me. It's about belief systems. I, I know you got, if you guys need to shut me down, let me know, but you got to find out what the belief systems are. What do they believe and what do they want? Mm-hmm. You know, where are they at? Um, so we can really spend all this unnecessary, don't spend all this unnecessary time on irrelevant stuff. And it's about trust. And I think trust really comes from really demonstrating that you love people. You care about people. Right. You know, like, I want your business to grow. And I, and, and Matthew, we connected on that too, because we're like, right. You know, right. this is like, we want people to really have a great experience and you, you care. I mean, dude, as a CEO and you, you you're hitting me up with $150 gig in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for a, right. a one time gig, you know, one off on a political campaign. I'm like, I, I can relate to this dude because he he's, he's going in deep as he possibly can, wherever he can, because he just, you don't want to orphan any, any of those, uh, any of those That's customers right. ever, you know, it's like it, it's painful. Right. And I feel the same way. So. And now the moment you have all been waiting for our number one moment of the first 50 episodes of the ad hero podcast. We sat down with advertising executive and marketing expert Gary Zalasko to learn about the three pillars of a perfect advertising campaign. This was episode 15. And I wanted to interject that just to make sure our listening audience gets the full scope of kind of who you are and what you do. Uh, it'd be great to uh, just have you kind of give your 
name, title, and uh, all the ranging things that you do at a, a big, huge uh, mega church like Harvest? Well, my name is Gary Zalasco. I'm the director of Crusade Communications and Marketing. And I work at a ministry called Harvest Ministries. It's in Southern California and Riverside um, in Orange County. And what we do is we're, we're a little bit different. I mean, there, there are ministries that are big churches. We are a big church. We, we uh, probably see about 15,000 people come through the church every week for services. Wow. There are ministries that are big media ministries. They might have, you know, TV, radio, you know, uh, web kind of digital platforms. We have all that. But we also do something, uh, we, we do large-scale evangelistic events, like Billy Graham Crusades. We've been doing it for 30 years. We do one every year at Angel Stadium in Anaheim, and then we go different places you know, as well throughout the country and the world. And so there are, there are ministries that are big churches. There are ministries that are media ministries. There are media, uh, pardon me, there are ministries that uh, do large-scale evangelistic events, but there's really no ministry aside from us that does all three of those. And so that's what we do at the ministry. What I do is I work within the crusade department and also do like with films, other things we do with communications and uh, just try to bring uh, kind of a, a marketing discipline uh, to what we do as a ministry. And, wow. Yeah. And I, and I think when I shared your, your, those disciplines with the uh, guys here, what got me really excited to uh, want to invite you to be on the podcast is you have a unique background mm-hmm. prior to joining working in a church setting um, that enables you to bring these disciplines to the table and just this widespread breadth of knowledge that I think if there's other directors of marketing out there or marketing managers of other churches, I think they could learn a tremendous amount from this episode and kind of what you what that background was. So can you shed some light on where you were at prior to joining Harvest? I was incarcerated. Okay. <laughs> uh, Been there myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fun story. I'll tell you later. We'll post yeah. his uh, mugshot in the show notes. <laughs> right. No, no. So, yeah, I mean, I, okay, I grew up Catholic and in, you know, a billion years, I, I would never, never thought I'd get into ministry. Um, I had, I got out of college. I went to a school at University of Illinois in Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. And uh, got a marketing degree there. I worked in the advertising agency business. Then I worked in television sales management. So I worked at different, uh, I worked at a rep firm in Atlanta. But they rep- represented stations all over the country. Uh, then I worked for local TV stations. I worked for one in, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, WSB. I was the national, I was an account executive there. So I sold commercial time. I was the national sales manager at WBAL TV in Baltimore, which is the, owned by the Hearst organization. Great company. I then was a general sales manager running the, um, the, the sales department for a station in Tucson. Then I went to San Francisco. It was a national, then a local sales manager. So I did that for about 10 or 11 years all over the, all over the, the place, right? Uh, in San Francisco, it was great. I was at the CBS owned and operated station, KPIX, Channel 5. Channel 5, uh, yeah. I, we know my well. My wife, yeah. on Battery Street there in San Francisco, a great, great location. Um, my wife, who's brilliant, had started uh, a direct mail catalog back in the mid-90s. And it was a skin a skincare catalog. It was a her mom used to buy stuff, uh, direct mail all the time, but she never could get skincare through direct mail. So we started that, and uh, it was a company called Luminescence Catalog. Mm. And as you know, we, we ran it on – what happened is I kind of got out of that business. I got into business with my wife. We had the, – the, you know, like most businesses, wasn't making money the first couple of years. We had a couple – you know, some money to keep us going. We lived in this 800-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. And we did this together and uh, she handled the creative and I handled kind of the operations and marketing of it. Mm. And just when we were going to run out of money where I had to like sell my car and go get a, a, you know, a job, 
the business started making money, we started, were able to take a, uh, uh, a salary from it. And so for 10 years, we did that together. We built it on cash wow. flow. So it wasn't, we didn't have uh, investors. We, you know, we put together a cat. We mailed about 10 million catalogs a year. So it was back when we mailed catalogs back in those days. Um, You're the original Amazon. Yeah. Well, right? you know, it's yeah. funny. We, we, we got, we, you know, we realized, you know, Hey, look, you know, selling stuff online is, you know, that's a, that's, you know, that's got some possibilities. And so by the end, by the time that we sold the business, which was about 2005, uh, we did about 25% of our sales online. So, wow. you know, the, the, the direct mail that kind of fed the, the, the web presence it's in and vice versa. Nice. So, you know, not, you know, I grew up with three brothers. I, you know, I didn't know skincare from, you know, whatever, but we, we did that together as a great just opportunity to work with my wife and I just had a great time and did that. And then in 2003, we're living in, in the Bay Area, and I was uh, our pastor invited us over for dinner. I talked to him and I said, "What do you think, you know, Pastor? What would it take to bring a Harvest Crusade to San Jose, which is again what we one of the things we do at Harvest here, this large scale evangelistic event?" Well, what about you? You know, you got time. You can schedule your thing. So for two and a half years, I volunteered. And, you know, spent 10 minutes one day, 20 minutes the next day, an hour that day awesome. to try to see if I could get pastors interested, if there's going to be any interest in bringing a crusade to San Jose. Because Harvest doesn't come in and go, we're coming in to do a, a crusade here. They wait. It's organic. So we have to have the local pastors, the local church really get behind it. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work. And so I did that for two and a half years. And then we had, we got, you know, they're, we realized the local the local you know, churches in the market were going to take this thing and run with it. Sold the assets to the business, came on board at Harvest, made like no money uh, for a long time. <laughs> and I worked in San Jose for a year, 2005, 2006, to mobilize that crusade. The crusade happened. Uh, it was called the HP Pavilion. It was back back in those days in 2006 wow, yeah. where the Sharks played hockey. We had 40,000 people over the weekend in a in an area of the country that is not known to be highly churched, you know, in the Bay Area. And about 4,000 people made a profession of faith in Christ. It was a huge success. On Saturday, Harvest Crusades are free. So Saturday, it was a capacity crowd. And the, one of the ushers told us, the only time there's ever been a capacity crowd in this arena before was for a playoff game in the NHL. Wow. So that was a huge success. It worked out great. Harvest then brought me down to Southern California. So I started here in November 2006 to then direct different departments. And I've been here on November 1st. I'll be here 14 years, which is the oh, longest I've ever wow. been in the job. Congratulations. <laughs> As I say, at the beginning, in a billion years, I wouldn't have thought I'd be working at a ministry. It was like the most foreign thing <laughs> in my mind, but here I am. Wow. Yeah, my, uh, my mother has tried to get me to work at uh, the West Angeles ministry down in Los Angeles, but one, I'm not in LA, yeah. and I'm... Two, I'm not in LA. I'm not going to go back to Los Angeles. That's where I grew up. And uh, I'm going to leave the SoCal region pretty much in your hands, Gary. You have fun with that one, man. (laughs) You know, but uh, one of the things, especially when we got to work together uh, to help big up Harvest, this last one that happened uh, down in Anaheim. And and help me out with the, the, was that actually at Anaheim Stadium, at Angel Stadium? Yeah, Angel Stadium. Yep. Okay, right on. Um, And then so the first one you mentioned, 40,000 people. And that was, that was, that was in San Jose. So that was at a 14,000 seat, you know, arena there, but Angel Stadium holds about 45,000 people. So when we do the Southern California crusade, SoCal Harvest is what we call it. um, That's a three day event. So it's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So over this last 
time we did it, which was August of 2019, we had 100,000 people that came out. And we had about 9,000 people that made a profession of faith in Christ, which wow. is very, uh, it's about 10%. So about 10% of the people that come out, excuse me, come forward and make a public profession of faith in Christ. And over the course of 30 years, we've been doing this since 1990, there's been over 5 million people that have come to Harvest Crusades and about half a million people that made a profession of faith in Christ. Incredible. So it's, a, it's, it's a, an amazing work. And yeah, as I told Matthew, there's 7,000 people that we, that we need to be volunteers in Anaheim to make it work. Uh, people that are on the field as counselors, you know, there's security people, there's people that, you know, mushers, all kinds of stuff. So it's not like we come in and we're like the circus, we bring the circus to town. It is a collaborative event that uh, people, you know, it, people, are, they love it. I mean, there are people that have been to every single Harvest Crusade, you know, in SoCal. <laughs> and and um, when we've we, been there every year. Yeah. When we were working on the creative to help you, so for full disclosure right. background, right, Gary uh, and Harvest actually utilized our add simple open display platform to do uh, a number of billboards all over Orange County and Los Angeles to help get the word out for the event and, uh, and generate that buzz. But what the real interesting takeaway that I found in personally getting a chance to work with Gary was uh, he had a very, very, very uh, tactical approach to how he wanted to deploy the campaign. And I think if you are a marketing manager listening to this episode right now, regardless if you work in a church or a tech company or any kind of nonprofit for that matter, his wisdom in his approach to how he wanted the campaign to come together was so incredible. Um, and there's a, and he wrapped it around a really cool analogy called the three legged stool. So I'm going to let, let Gary tell us, Tell everyone listening right now, what is the three-legged stool? What was that approach? Because it's so brilliant. I just, yeah. Trade secrets here, man. Trade secrets. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> well, breaking them right here on Ad yeah. Hero Podcast. This is, this is something that, you know, after 30 years of doing stuff in media and marketing, I realized this works in TV. This works in, you know, ministry. And so it, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, you're a marketing manager at a church or you're, you're, you know, whatever. You're working at, a, you know, some kind of media outlet. You know, most stools, when you think of stools, in fact, I think I have a stool right here. <laughs> this is right, we got the, a visual. I wasn't even planning on using it. Most stools, <laughs> most stools are four legs, right? Yep. Yeah. Think of, think of a four-legged stool. Well, if you have three-legged, there's three-legged stools. If, if you put the legs in the right place, it's going to hold your weight, right? Yes. you got to be in the right place, though. And so if you imagine a three-legged stool and you imagine the seat of it being, you know, an effective campaign to reach your audience okay just a minute and if you have the legs in the right place mm. they're going to support that okay so the first leg is and they're all interchangeable and then, by the way this is the point is that if you look at it in this way and you tune up and you have all three of these legs working properly and you're working with you know an established um, advertising medium like outdoor it's going to work if one of these three don't work, it's not going to work or more. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's our work. Trouble down the line. Huh. So again, you got the so the effective campaign. The three legs are these. First, you have to identify your audience correctly. Okay, you can have all the money in the world, and you can have the best creative in the world, but if you don't target your audience directly, then it's not going to work. It's mm -hmm. going to go to the wrong people. Secondly, you have to have the right Reach and frequency, you have to have a schedule that talks, you know, that like you have identified your target market, you've got to 
put the, the, the creative in front of people, in front of those people so they see it, okay? That includes reach and frequency, includes budget. So it's a schedule. It's a campaign. Mm. So, you've tar- so if you've targeted your audience correctly, you know who your audience is, the target audience, and you've built a campaign that, and you have enough money to get the reach and frequency, so you're going to reach those people, okay? The third leg to the stool is the creative. Mm. So you can have, you can target your market correctly, you can have all the money in the world, but if the creative doesn't talk to those people, it's not going to work. So if you have, but if you have all three and you look at any campaign or any, it could be small, it could be nothing. It could be $50 or something. Mm. But if you have creative, if you've targeted your market correctly, if you have enough reach and frequency and you have creative that talks to those people, it doesn't matter, matter whether it's, you know, TV, radio, web, digital, outdoor, it's going to work as long as it's an established medium. And so every campaign that you do, and that's what we applied here with outdoor is, you know, we were blessed. We had, you know, we had a budget for a lot of boards in LA and Orange County, as Matthew was saying, our target audience for for this particular thing for for a harvest crusade is Christians. 80% of the people that make a profession of faith in Christ are brought by a Christian. They're prayed for, they're invited and they're brought by a Christian. Mm. People don't walk out, you know, oh, I'm seeing an outdoor billboard. I think I'm going to go, you know, accept the Lord. That doesn't happen. <laughs> what happens is Christians pray, invite, and bring those people, and then they see that board, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my friend Matthew invited me to this thing. Yeah, that's cool. And what we try to do at Harvest is make it so it's, and Matthew will attest this because he was here last here for August, it's an event that is, it's, it's a cool event. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a Christian, you're bringing somebody, it's not going to be like, ah, oh, this is lame. It's, it's not lame at all. The one thing about Harvest is if we can't do something like really, really well, we don't do it. And so we, our target audience is Christians. You know, we're, we're going to get in front of those people. We have a full staff here in this department of mobilizing churches and people in churches to get out. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm, I'm getting a little off, off target here, but it's, it's, it's this yeah, important. Okay. Mobilizing for an event is like Matthew and I have discussed. It's, a, it's like, pro, for lack of a better term or uh, illustration, it's like prosecuting a war. And, it, you know, there's no country on earth that can afford an air force that says, I don't want an air force. Ah, let's have more people on the ground. They have an air force and they have ground troops. Okay. Mm. Now you can win a war with ground troops and you can be like the civil war and it can be unbelievable carnage and horrible. You don't want to do that. You can win a war with air power but it's really expensive and there's collateral damage and it's not the way to do it. Mm. If you kind of collaborate between the ground forces and the air forces, that's the best way to prosecute a war. In terms of mobilizing for an event, it's the same thing. Mm. You have ground forces. In this case, we have a department of, of guys, people that are going out mobilizing churches and people in churches to pray, invite and bring Christians to this event. Okay. In addition to that, the air war is all the stuff in the air, on the air, radio, outdoor, digital, all that stuff. Fascinating. If you, you can, you can spend a ton of money and all, or all your money in mobilizing, you know, the churches and that can get very expensive or you can just not do that and just go over here and that gets expensive. But if you do them together, you can have the most success and it can be done most efficiently in terms of, you know, your spend. Mm. And I, I love that you say how you just described that uh, land war, air war. We were having a conversation with a, a colleague at uh, Outside Tech Ranch not too long ago, and 
you know, his whole thing was, yeah, I'm going really heavy on this event on Instagram. Yeah. And we're like, is that the only place you're going heavy on? He's like, yeah, I'm doing everything on Instagram. I mean, Instagram's great. You guys should be on Instagram without a doubt. But just also think about how much noise there is on Instagram. And if that's your only outlet to get the word out about something, you, as Gary just described, you're leaving other things off the table that can be really helping you. Uh, and, uh, and so anyways, there's this interesting, it, I think for anyone listening, regardless of the size, what they can do, if they can keep those three legs of the stool in mind. Yeah. And, and I think all of us here have worked with different clients. And when they've been working with a multitude of things and, and, and they have different things firing for them, getting the right target on, those are the clients that have the most success, yeah, right? and without a doubt. Exactly what Gary mentioned. And I, I love how you just simplified oh. basically what it is people need to have a successful campaign, especially, I mean, right. for pretty much anything you're doing, whether it's going to be a huge event or uh, just anything you're advertising or promoting. Oh. And so, again, for, for the listeners, just to recap that and, and package that up for you. So the three legs of that stool, and, uh, and again, it's like Gary, you had mentioned they're kind of interchangeable in the sense that if, you know, obviously if one leg is gone, the stool's going to fall apart, so just don't mm -hmm. force it. You got to have the right audience, correct? Mm -hmm. You got to make sure your creative is on point, so you're yep. speaking to the correct people. Right. But as well, you do need to schedule that, um, and schedule comes down to the frequency, so you're staying in front of people right. in a relevant enough way, but at the same time, you get the power of math behind you, otherwise, yep. you, you know, blow the bank right and another thing too like to matthew to what you're to speak to what you're saying is that you know the cool thing about i mean i i got my marketing degree in 1984 so it's been a long time ago but the and things a lot of things have changed they've gotten better it's gotten i mean you, now we have metrics where we can see stuff working you know and like right. you know and you know put money different places and, and have challengers and champions and do a lot of split testing but the concepts are still the same mm. and you never like you're talking yes. about putting all the money in one place there's a there's a term called a media mix and there's and it's still in effect you you don't want to have you know a preponderance of your money in in anything and in, in whether it's digital or if you can't i mean you want to spread it out because what you'll find is that there's a there's for lack of a better term i guess a synergy or like a rising tide that lifts all the boats because there you know people it's said you know and i've, I've seen a lot of studies that people need to uh, be exposed to an advertisement or, or some kind of message seven times. Mm, and yeah, yeah. there's been people, well, it's three, it's more, you know, but <laughs> the thing is you need more than one. And so, yeah. yes. Uh, yes. What happens is like, sometimes you, uh, I was just, I was doing a deal with somebody and they had a, it was a, it was an hour thing and your, your ad came up it was a video thing. Your, your ad only came up four times in an hour. Well, if you, if you see the same, whether it's like, you hear the same radio ad or see the same banner that comes up or ad that comes up when you're online or, or even see the same billboard. Okay. Sometimes that you'll, you'll get kind of numb to that. But mm -hmm. if you see something online and then you see something outside on outdoor, these things work together. Wow. One of the things I was going to bring up, Matthew was maybe we can talk a little bit about is the creative we did for the campaign for SoCal where we changed up the creative. So we had the same, you know, background, the same font as, you know, it was, it wasn't different per se, but we had different kind of things so we could bring in other elements because what I've, it just as a consumer, as I've been driving, you know, I drive and I'm watching the outdoor boards. I'm like, oh man, most of them have way too much information. It's like, yeah. I can't, oh. I can't, yeah, I can't figure that out. I'm driving by. Right there. <laughs> I'm, I'll be like getting an accident if I have to read everything on your board. Right.
Wow, what an amazing top 10 episodes of the Ad Hero Podcast. Yeah, those highlights really hit home, uh, especially since the theme of our podcast is marketing and advertising. And I'm telling you, man, those those top three episodes with Lee Rafkin and Eric Murr and Gary Zalasco, if you guys don't do anything else with the podcast and you just zero in on those three episodes, they can really help transform your brand and help you build your business, especially for marketing and advertising, because it literally spells out how to have an effective brand and launch an effective campaign of any kind of advertising. So to, to kind of create that for the podcast and happy old people be able to listen to those episodes is whenever they want, unlimited amount of times, that is just really hits home for me. And I love that, man. It's awesome. That's just so great. So we have uh, another 50 episodes to go. That's right, baby. Let's keep this party going. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, if you like the podcast, drop us a line on, drop us a voicemail on Anchor. Give us a shout on social media. Share it with a friend or two. Let them know how much fun uh, we have over here. And uh, we would love to have them check it out and, and also be a part of the show. Drop us some comments and uh, give us a subscribe on YouTube. Thank you for tuning in to the Ad Hero Podcast for episode 50. Big 5-0. For all your advertising needs, come on over to adsymbol.com. My name is Gio Giovanni. And I'm Matthew Olivieri. Your personal ad hero. For episode 50. Signing out.